0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another edition of the drive time show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Today is Tuesday the 7th of March 2023, uh, and we are going to be talking about uh, some very interesting topics um, uh, on today's on today's drive time show. Um, in the first hour or so we're going to be talking about early childhood and how it's uh, the most preventative years, the first five years uh, of when a child is actually born. Um, that actually encompasses the age of, uh, of you know the, the, the age of those youngsters, of those babies, of those toddlers as well, where they, where they if they are safeguarded, if, they, uh, if the preventatives are, are actually in place for them. That can actually prove uh for you know prove their safety can actually prove to be very very good in terms of uh, their security in terms of their safety in terms of preventatives or preventing from uh, from diseases illnesses various other things uh, as well they don't just have to be um, physical physical illnesses as well they can be internal illnesses they can be they can be they can be moral illnesses they can be spiritual illnesses as well but if they are taken care of um at a at a at an early stage in fact the earlier stage then then that that can actually prove to be very very vital very pivotal uh you know uh, you know talking about talking about how the development of the child is um that can actually very you know that can prove to be quite good in terms of that as well into in 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 terms of the second part of the show this uh, the second hour of the show we're going to be talking about something which is quite uh, quite similar but in regards to health we're going to be talking about the nhs the need for social care reform and how uh, in that part of the show we're going to be talking about the need for reformation of social care to help relieve the pressure on the NHS as well. So that's going to be very important. So we're talking about social care services, how they're providing support to people um, with all sorts of disabilities, whether they are physical disabilities, whether they are illnesses, mental health illnesses, uh, whatever the illness or disease um, or sickness it may be, the NHS is doing its best, the social care is doing its best in terms of uh, providing this service uh, as well Um, for the people who need it as well. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on as well. As I mentioned, early childhood encompasses the age of birth to about five years old. And these first few years pass by incredibly quickly. And uh, something which, you know, is something that shouldn't be taken lightly because they are very very important years the first five years are utmost they're very very important and during and this is because during this five-year period the child develops the foundation skills that they need to become well-functioning adults you know if we're talking about with with the voice of islam we're talking about uh, the islamic perspective about this this is also you know very much in terms of the in line with the islamic teachings as well because the holy founder of Islam, the holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he instructed Muslims that, you know, when 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 a baby is born, then the the call for the adhan, the call for the adhan now, uh, or the call for prayer, which is called the adhan, so the call for prayer is actually um, said uh, into his or uh, her uh, right ear, and then the actual, you know, when the when the, when the prayer is actually about to begin, the ikamah, that, or the takbir, the ikamah, that is actually called in the left era as well. And this is because, you know, somebody asked um, His Holiness, somebody asked His Holiness, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian who we believe is the promised Messiah, and the awaited Mahdi, as I mentioned, he is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well. He actually, somebody asked him, as he in in terms of you know why we do this, what's the significance in this as well? Because let's face it, a baby when a baby is born, you know they're crying most of the time, you know they they're crying they or they're asleep they they don't even know what's happening they don't even know uh, what's around them they can't even see it properly as all well. their eyes are developing their hearing is developing everything about them is developing and to sort of call the you know the call the the call for the prayer which is the azan in the right ear and then the ikama in the left ear what's the significance about this because the child doesn't even know this now the promised messiah upon whom we peace, he actually said that you know this is because you know we we instill good things into the children at a very young age if we you know the, the thing the fact of the matter is is that when a baby is born the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, who who was the founder of Islam, he actually said that, you know, when a child is born, they are born very, very pure. They are born pure. And then it is the surroundings that changes them. You know, if if that child is born into a Christian family, the, the parents will teach that child Christianity and then that person will grow up, that boy or girl will grow up to be a Christian. If that boy or girl, if that baby is born into a Jewish family, um, it will get its upbringing in a Jewish tradition so they so you know when that child grows up it will be it will be a Jew same goes for you know any other religion same goes for if that child is born into an into, to a home where there's atheists and that child will most likely be be an atheist as well and the thing is is that what if we if we take this into consideration this means that the upbringing you know the, the actual birth of the child is very pure and and, and it is the upbringing of that child, if that child's parents are Muslims, and then you know they, they will teach that child the Islamic, the Islamic traditions, and that child will grow up to be, to, to be a Muslim. And this is why, from a very young age, we teach our children, we should try to teach our children uh, the basic etiquettes, the basic morals, the basic code of conduct, the way they should live their lives, and also, of course, if they are religious, if they, if they are born into a religious family, then teach those children, the uh, teach those children the, the, the religion that they follow as well. And this is the reason why we why we actually call the adhan in the right ear, we call the Akama in the left ear, so that the upbringing of the child from a very from the initial stage is actually done in a beautiful manner, in a manner in which teaches tawheed, and tawheed in Arabic means the the unity, the unity in God Almighty uh, as well. So these are things which we, you know, which we actually do, which we, um, the way that we bring our children uh, as well, we're actually asking our, uh, our, you know, our audience, you guys who are listening out there uh, on our Instagram handle at voiceofislamuk, upbringing from ages one to five impact our adult selves. Is that, you know, what do you what do you think about that? Do you completely agree? Do you think it's a, it's a you know it's a fair account, or do you think that you know it's just a little bit? It doesn't really matter, just a little bit, or not at all. Um, so we'll, we like to we we'll like to you know see what you guys have to say about this as well. Of course, it is an interactive show. If you want to contribute to the show, if you want to call in, the number, uh, the line uh, are you know are, are open is the number for you to call. Now, talking about Islam, the holy founder of Islam, the holy Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him is narrated to have said that treat your children fairly, treat your children fairly. Take heed of this teaching; will only benefit children as a fair and good upbringing will lead to a successful adult life as well. Now, for you know this, the the experiences, the knowledge children actually gather together, they garner. Will benefit them immensely if they if they're actually guided and also mentored correctly. And therefore, optimizing the early years of their life is actually the best investment we can actually make as a society. This that, that's a, you know one of the best things that we can actually do. The the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. Now his caliphate. In the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, we have five uh, caliphs so far. We under currently we are under the fifth caliphate. Um, his name is Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. He is the worldwide head and the, and the and the current head. But talking about the the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, may Allah be pleased with him. Now his caliphate was actually the longest caliphate so far. So you know over 52 years, and one of the many many things which he actually initiated which he started in the community was the auxiliary organizations in the community and the auxiliary organizations are sort of, sort of you know the, the the women's auxiliary organization the young women auxiliary organization the young children the men the elder men uh, so these are five different uh, auxiliary organizations which he actually started uh, during his caliphate as well now when he was in talking about the youth of the organization, the youth of the of the actually of the of the community, he said something which is actually quite remarkable. He said that nations cannot be reformed without the reformation of the youth now how how deep is that? If you think about that, if you actually take that into consideration, a you know a a nation cannot be reformed without the reformation. Of the youth now I mean when you say that it's actually quite simple but to actually come up with that or to actually actually uh, you know put that forward to put this idea forward and present that to the community to the world actually that's quite remarkable and this actually means that what you know what he was saying was that if we instill good manners if we instill good conduct if we educate our children if we you know, put the things out there which are preventatives in terms of, you know, if we, if we sort of guide them, in, you know, in, in this path, if we, if we sort of channel their thoughts in this path, if we try to, you know, if we educate them to the best of our ability in this path, they can actually, they will be reformed themselves. And if the youth are reformed, then of course, you know, the youth grow up, obviously, the youth grow up and when they're older, they can actually reform the nation. So when he said nations cannot be reformed without the reformation of the youth, that is actually, you know, quite quite a remarkable um, sort of uh, statement which he made as well. We'll come we'll come back to that in just uh, in just a bit as well. Uh, But let's uh, let's speak to our guest, uh, our first guest for uh, for this for tonight's show, um, who is Dr. Jay Belsky, who is a child psychologist and professor of human development at the university of uh, of california he was a founding investigator of the national institute of child health and human developments uh, ch- uh, study of uh, early child care and youth development in the united states and of the national evaluation of the Sure start in the uk as well peace be upon you good afternoon and welcome to the show
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us uh, on our show uh, this afternoon. Now, just to begin with, how important is it for for, for a baby to develop a, a healthy parent-infant relationship during the first few years of, uh, of his life?
1: Um, I would say, you know, we can, we can exaggerate um, and catastrophize what happens if a baby doesn't get that kind of support but i think that's a mistake i mean it's very clear from studies of orphanages and institutions like in romania um <clears throat> during the communist era that you know if children get virtually no individualized care and support um and are fundamentally neglected in a severe way that that has long term bad consequences for them um At the same time, at the other end of the spectrum, there's clear evidence that sensitive, responsive, caring support for a baby in the early years um, carries developmental benefits. Um, It's not going to make the child um, a genius. It's not going to make the child an astronaut. It's not going to make the child um, some perfect person. But it is the route to normal, healthy development. Hmm. Primates, and we are primates, just like chimpanzees, just like the willies, need caring and contact um, and protection, most importantly, during their most vulnerable years, and that's when they're babies, and cannot in any manner, shape, or form, really take care of themselves. So um, babies have evolved to expect, desire, and benefit from close care from their caregivers,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: <clears throat> parents have actually evolved to provide that care, to be sensitive and responsive, barring constraining conditions, um, to their baby's needs, wants, and desires.
0: Hmm. Now, when, when we just, uh, just, talk, just talking a little bit more about this as well, when we say parent-infant uh, relationship, uh, is it important that the child has both parents? Then uh, a mother and a father, and that w- that would make a much you know a much healthier. Um, relationship or is it it that only one parent can do as well?
1: Um, There's plenty of evidence, not so much in infancy but through childhood, Hmm. that having two parents in general, on average, probabilistically, is in the child's best interest. But having said that, um, many, especially a baby, what's critically important for a baby is to have at least one dedicated caregiver who will get to know that baby, who will get to understand that baby's unique characteristics, um, who will fall in love with that baby and who that baby will fall in love with, which Mm. we call an attachment. Um, Mm. Now, even if having two parents um, in general on average probabilistically is better than one, um, we shouldn't again pathologize just one parent. There are plenty Mm. of single parents out there who do a great job and perhaps even better than two-parent families. And there are sadly plenty of two-parent families out there um, that don't do such a great job. Mm. So I think the issue is less do you have one or two parents than what is the quality of the relationships and the devotion that they um, provide and establish with their child.
0: Mm. Interesting, interesting. Now just leading on from that as well, in, in your professional opinion, if if uh, financial circumstances allow is it actually advisable that the mother stay at home with the child for for the first few years in order you know to to provide stability and a safe upbringing for the child
1: i think it's advisable that the baby have steady predictable have a steady predictable person to care for them um i don't think it has to be the mother it mostly usually is because Hmm. of um, mother's devotions um um, but it could be the father, it could be the grandmother. Um, it's preferably somebody in the family. Um, babies have a desire to establish attachments, close bonds, you know, feelings of love and, um, to somebody who cares for them well. They don't necessarily distinguish that it has to be the mother, the father, the neighbor, the aunt. It should be somebody. Now, it typically is the mother because she carries the baby She bears the baby. In classic times, she nurses the baby. Um, So, but it it can be somebody else, but the mother is typically the most easy-to-go-to natural person for that um, role, as looking at families around the world makes very clear.
0: Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Now, what what, what does it mean for a child to be developmentally um, sort of um malleable uh, and does this actually affect how resilient or sensitive a child is to to adversity?
1: Um, yes there's ever more evidence it's that, that, that we tend to think that all children are developmentally malleable, especially in the early years, to prepare to prepare to prepare them for the world they're going to live in as they grow up. Hmm. Um, hmm. It turns out though that some children look like they're more environmentally sensitive, responsive, influenced by um, the care they receive than others. You might think of it this way. Some children are more at the end of the continuum where they're going to be who they're going to be almost no matter what the quality of care is, provided it's sufficient to support normal development. Other children... Um, however, look like they're much more sensitive to um, the quality of care they get and the the devotion they experience from their caregivers. And what's interesting is this, what I call differential susceptibility to environmental or caregiving environments, um, affects both responsiveness to adversity, to bad rearing conditions, and responsiveness to nurturance and support and good rearing conditions. Hmm. So those more susceptible babies who are more, and young children who are more influenced by the quality of care they get, do better than other children when they get good quality of care and worse than other children developmentally when they get poor quality of care. Hmm. In, contrast, in contrast, the children who are less malleable or less susceptible to environmental influences, um, aren't as effective anyplace near as much. What we should do, that what I should qualify this by all saying is, it's not the case that we have two types of kids, sometimes labeled orchids, very responsive to the environment, and dandelions, not particularly responsive to the environment, because it's really just a continuum. It's like weight or height. You can be more, and you can be less sensitive and responsive to the environment. It's not that you are one way; that there are two sets of children, one group that's un- not sensitive and one group that is sensitive. Mm. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Now, professor, um, you, uh, doctor, you mentioned that the, uh, you know, this upbringing of uh, of the child is, you know, obviously very important. Obviously the development as well. Just leading on uh, from that, I wanted to ask you that if, for instance, you know, a, 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 you know parents, they, they have a child and they try their best to actually, you know, take care of that child and they actually do a, do a decent job, they actually do a good job in raising that child as well. And then they have uh, another child. Is it that that first child can also, you know, be, despite the fact that it might still be young, might still be three, four, five years old, but that can also be a teacher to the next child as well, and you know the the sort of a psychologically, the next child would also have the good habits, the good things, uh, which the first child has. Is that something which is uh, in true or?
1: I, I, I think that gets very complicated. First of hmm. all, children definitely are influenced by their siblings. Yeah, um, yeah, but probably not as much as by their parents. Um, And um, and just because the older sibling turned out one way is no guarantee um, that that's going to influence the younger child to turn out the same way. In fact, if you look at almost any family, it's striking how different (laughs) children children in the same family are. Mm. And I think, quite frankly, that makes evolutionary sense. Um, Tomorrow's uncertain always has been. So exactly what's gonna be needed to flourish in the future environment is unknown. We might have suspicions, we might have hopes, we might have expectations, but it's unknown. If you have children who are cookie-cutter images of each other, Hmm. that's great if the environment turns out to welcome that kind of cookie-cutter image. But imagine what happens when you have two children who are cookie-cutters and the future environment turns out not to be the same shape Mm. to accommodate them. Well, now you have two children who are undermined in their ability to flourish in that future environment. So I think what nature has done um, is create a reproductive system where we're not clones of each other. We're not exact replicas of each other. Two children in the same family share 50% of their genes. That's a lot of ground to be different. Mm. And that means that Um, they might each flourish in different kind of future environments. And since you don't know which one's going to be there, you as a reproductive agent, as a parent, have kind of hedged your bets Um, in the same way. You know, think of it this way. When it comes to investing money, one of the wise pieces of guidance is diversify. Put some money in the equity markets, put some money in the bank, put some money in bonds, put some money in gold, put some money under the, mattress if you have enough money to do all those things why because you don't know which investment is going to pay off the most over the long run so by diversifying investments you increase the average likelihood of, uh, of what's going to happen mm-hmm. you that, that's the best hand you can play with the cards you've been dealt i think in a lot of ways parents when they have multiple children unknowingly are doing the same thing they're quote manufacturing through the mixing of genes and the mixing of family life, because some are young children and some are older children, the creation of different kinds of people. And now you've hedged your bets with regard to an uncertain future. Maybe some of those children will flourish because of their characteristics and capabilities, Mm -hmm. and others will do less well because of their characteristics and capabilities. That's a better strategy, if you would than putting all your eggs in one basket and saying we're gonna have a kid like this because how do you know tomorrow will be a welcoming environment for a kid like this
0: you can't know hmm yeah yeah and uh I mean that also that you know that's that's the beauty of the human race as well that, you know even twins even twins they may look very similar but uh, you know even they are quite different uh, as well um in your uh, well in, yeah
1: I was just gonna say you know, identical twins are because they share 100 percent of their genes are more similar than any other sets of siblings, mm. um, typically. But that doesn't mean they're identical, as you just said. Yeah. Um, we call them identical twins because they have the same genes, but they develop differently if, if, exactly. if for no other reason that each has to respond to a different person. A is responding and living with B, who might influence them, and B is responding and being influenced by A. Who might
0: influence him. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in 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 your book, uh, Doctor, the 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 origins of you, there is a section titled "How Early Temperament Comes to Be Related to 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 Later Personality." Now, does personality in early childhood indicate what they will be like as uh, you know when they grow up uh, into adolescence and then even more than that into adults as well?
1: Um, to a modest extent, yes, on average. But that could well be, it looks like it is, because it's a stronger effect for some children than others. You know, some children grow up, um, and they're, let's say, very bold. They're very curious. And if they're, they're very... Um, inclined to take a risk, maybe crawl over to new things rather than stand back and watch them. Other Mm. children are more hesitant, shy, inhibited. Now, both of those ways of being can be subject to change over time. But by the same token, that child who grows up bold and curious, as long as it doesn't harm him along the way or her, is probably going to end up bolder and more curious and more risk-taking than the shy inhibited child. Hmm. And by the same token, the shy inhibited child is probably more likely to grow up barring some unforeseen tragic events to be still a little bit more hesitant or a lot more, more shy, more introverted than that bolder child. Hmm. So we can think about early temperaments as proclivities, tendencies, um, even likelihoods, but not certainties. So, it is true, as the saying goes, at least to some degree, that the father is the child of the man. Well, I'm sorry, the child is the father of the man. Who the child is tells you something, but not everything, about who that child will become as a grown-up.
0: Hmm. And you know, the, it's, it, it is very interesting, isn't it? It is very interesting, all of this, and how you know it comes into comes into play as well Dr. Dr. Jay it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and getting your insight in terms of this as well um, uh, and your thoughts on your you know on on your book the origins of you as always been absolutely delightful speaking to you thank you so much and have a lovely day. Uh,
1: happy to do it thank you um, have a good day bye
0: bye 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 that was uh, that was Dr. J. Belsky, who's a child psychologist and professor of human development at the University of California, Davies, uh, as well. He was the found investigator of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development's uh, study of early child care and youth development in the United States as well. Very interesting uh, speaking speaking to him. Now, he also mentioned, he was talking about all of these things that it, it is the development of the child that needs to be taken care of. We can't sort of take it lightly we can't just think that you know the child is so young he's not going to understand this what's the point of doing it you know, we, that, that's, you know that's the thing that's the thing sometimes we do something we do we tell the child something and we think that you know the child is too young or to understand it maybe you know it doesn't even it's not even developed yet it doesn't, can't even speak properly uh, can't even read or write properly and we, what's the point of telling telling the child good manners teaching them how to eat teaching them how to actually change their clothes or teaching them more intricate things such as you know such as religion and religious teachings as well but the fact of the matter is is that it's never it's never too early to teach your child anything you can teach your child good manners at a very young age you can teach your child to actually how to properly get up how to properly sit down how to properly dress your clothes how to properly how to tie your shoelace how to zip up your 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 jacket various different simple things but good manners and then you know different things if you if you teach your child different things the more diverse their their mind would be and the more uh, the more they will be acceptable to intricacies as well um not just you know not just talking about all the all the positives that we can do in this sense as well when it comes to when it comes to other things such as um, you know good morals and good conduct is is one thing but coming back to what we were talking about earlier on, when we before we spoke to uh, Dr. J. Belsky, was that spirituality and teaching the child religion—that's also very important. And when it comes to brain development, this actually comes in uh, in hand in hand as well, because this actually leads on to to the role of parents and how much the parents is their responsibility to take care. Of the you know of the, of the child's upbringing and make sure that's done in a very very good uh, and a very positive manner as well. In fact, um, you know the uh, in fact His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, the fifth Caliph of the Promised Messiah upon whom be peace, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad may Allah strengthen his hand, said that it is human nature for an individual to copy and learn from those who are around them and this trait is especially apparent in children and that's quite right children do what their you know what their parents do they copy their parents and if they have siblings if they have older brothers and sisters they they copy them they copy each other and all the good things that they do they copy that all the bad things that they that they do they also copy that as well now he also went on to explain and this is a quote <coughs> excuse me he went on to say that it is a consequence of this tendency to copy and be influenced by his environment that man learns the language from one's parents learns other deeds and good things which make a child a well-mannered person if the parents are virtuous, observe their prayers read and recite the Holy Quran live with each other in an atmosphere of love and affection and abhor falsehood then the children under their influence will also adopt virtues. On the contrary, if the child sees lying, fighting and disputes, making fun of others in the home, not giving due regard to the dignity of the community or or other such bad actions, then because of that tendency to copy, because of the impact of the environment, the child learns these evils. And that's, you know, exactly what I just said, that a child copies their parents, copies their surroundings, is influenced by their surroundings. If, you know, the, the environment that that child is living in is, is a very positive environment, is a good environment, everyone's well-mannered around them, everyone respects them, respects each other, teaches, uh, you know, teaches, and teaches other good things, then of course that child will be under that influence of being in a positive environment. And when that child grows up into into a young man, into a young woman, and actually grows even more than that, turns into an adult, then, you know, that person will actually be a positive member of the society, will actually give back to the community, give back to the society, and actually be an active person, a hands-on person who is actually a good contributor towards the society, towards the peace of the society. This Holiness said, may Allah be his helper, um recently actually spoke on the importance of parents' involvement in in early childhood, saying that your children start going to school at the age of five to six or even seven in some places. So up until the age of five, seven they are with you. And during that time, talking about you know, specifically to the parents, during that time, let them play carefree because you see them as very young. At this age, however, you should teach them small acts of goodness, prayers, and educate them. These small aspects should be instilled in a child's mind. A child is receptive to to goodness. Parents should make the same effort in educating their children as, as schools do to instill the concept of freedom of children, that was what his Holiness actually actually said as well. And it's, it's, it's actually you know bang on what his Holiness was actually saying and talking about, talking about how we should treat our children in the, the, you know the, the best way in which we can actually um, upbring our children as well, making sure that the environment that they're living in is a very positive environment uh, uh, as well. We'll come back to this uh, uh, in just a bit as well. But before that, let's speak to our next guest, who is on the line with us, Julie Pearson, who, who's in, uh, an early early years development manager at the Early Years Alliance. Julie is passionate about the early years and supporting the empower, supporting and empowering parents and caregivers as a child's first educators as well, with over 25 years of experience working in this particular sector as well. Julie, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having
0: me. Thank you so much for joining us. The Early Years Alliance offers a, a, a an array of uh, of different resources for parents and also carers as well. Could you just tell us a little bit more about this for the benefit of our listeners, please?
2: Yeah. Well, as you've just mentioned, we really acknowledge as the alliance that importance of the early years and that role of a parent as a child's first educator. Um, and we know already, and you've already been having conversations about that impact of children's early learning um, and development.
3: Hmm.
2: So at the Alliance, we've worked closely with families um, to develop resources that best support um, them to meet you know, their needs and be able to offer a supportive home learning environment for their children. So we deliver services, um, face-to-face services in the community, so in areas such as Lewisham and Lincolnshire um, and Birmingham. But we've also developed a variety of online resources that parents can access to find out more about how they can support their children's learning and development in that home learning environment. Hmm. So that consists of online learning sessions where families and children can come along together and we make Play-Doh and things together and talk about the learning that's happening while children are part of that session. And also sessions focusing on um, babies. Um, as you've already touched on, it's never too early. Children are learning from the moment they're born. Hmm. So um, sessions focusing on babies' brain development and how we can support babies as they grow and develop um, is also something that we offer as part of that um, family learning. That's,
0: that's, uh, that's absolutely great. Um, when talking, oh, you know, there must be some listen, uh, our listeners who are parents as well, and sometimes we, you know, we may do things that uh, you know that you know that are not so positive as all. Well. they might you know lean on to the negative side as well and we may not even know that and they, we must avoid those things as well but what are you know some of the ways in, in which uh, in which that actually happens because um, children's development can actually be affected negatively during the first few years uh, of you know of their life so what are some things which uh, which parents should actually avoid
2: um, yeah, I think it's almost about sort of flipping that question on its head and thinking about the things that we do do rather than mm. things we don't, because it's sometimes the things that we don't do that maybe has the negative impact if we don't talk to our children, right. um, and exam- for example. Um, it's really about making the most of every opportunity for our children just talking to them all the time about things we're doing. It might be we might be hanging our washing on the line, we might mm. be preparing lunch. But letting children hear us talk, you know, those things that we are doing is so, so important. And I think it's also important that we're kind to ourselves as parents too and accept that parenting can sometimes be challenging. And we need to look after our own well being as part of that. So we're in a in a positive place to be able to support our own children. Mm. Um, I suggest of thinking about how we support maybe our children as well with the activities and things that we offer for our children that are what we call in the early year sector process over product. Hmm. So sometimes if children are joining in an activity where there's sort of a prescribed end result some children can feel a bit anxious about that whereas if we can offer them toys and resources like the play doh example again where there's no right or wrong way to play with it or explore it in this open-ended way that can really build children's confidence it's almost about the journey and not the destination so playing alongside our children mm. but not being too focused on that end product or that end result will really build the confidence and well-being and also resilience which is a skill mm. that we certainly need into adulthood isn't it
0: absolutely no absolutely i completely i agree with that as well and t- just talking about that that you know that that transition uh, as well you're talking about and this you know it's it's more sort of about the about the journey not sort of the the end product as well when children are actually growing up and they grow and they're coming from that transition period from uh, you know from being at home to actually going you know getting old enough to actually go start going to school that school environment that they're going to get used to what should parents be actually be doing then, in terms of the development of the child, um, and te- teaching them their basic uh, basic things? You know, can you give us some advice?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's really important we acknowledge here that every child is going to be unique and different. And again, your hmm. your previous guest spoke a lot about that. Yeah. So I think the first thing I'd probably say to parents is. You know, try not to compare your children to others too much Mm. when you're talking about that transition. If you are worried about your child's development, speak to their key worker. If they're at a setting, they'll have a key person, sorry, that will be able to support them. So I think that's really important that we we tell parents, you know, not not to worry and not to try and compare because all children are different. But it might actually surprise you to know that, you know, preparation for school actually starts at birth. So we've spoken Mm. about... All of those early development stages, but that's when that confidence starts again, and that resilience. Those the ways we respond to our babies are actually part of that tra- supporting them and being able to cope with transitions such as starting school. Hmm. So it might not necessarily be about things such as I think sometimes when parents think about starting school, um, they think about it might be about being able to hold a pencil and write or be able to read. But actually, it's more about those wider aspects. It's about that confidence. It's about that resilience. It's about developing social skills um, and maybe being able to speak with their teachers and their peers. Mm. So things like reading to our children at home, sharing books together is is really um, important. The more language that children hear, the better, and it helps them to become confident communicators. Help children to have that language of emotions. Hmm. as well, it's really powerful. Help them to talk about their feelings. So that can be done through acknowledging their own feelings and saying things, like, oh, I can see you're feeling sad or upset or scared. It helps them to accept that all feelings are okay, but then label them too if they are a little bit worried when they're at school. Singing is also really brilliant for that school readiness and that preparation for school. So you can introduce ideas such as numbers through songs, singing songs that involve numbers is great. But also, that rhythm of singing will support reading skills and communication, um, and it's never too early to start singing and reading to children. Even tiny babies, we can sing and we can read stories, and we'll see those benefits um, on their later development. So, um, uh, I think yeah. it's just acknowledging that children learn through play. They learn through doing. So providing activities that children can do, maybe helping encouraging to help themselves get to rest, um, as well and making it a fun game for them to be involved in as part of that and um, Maybe again playing with play-doh or practicing Clipping those clothes pegs to maybe a piece of cardboard can develop fine motor skills for children So when we do move to school and they might be holding a pencil so Those muscles in their hands are already nice and strong mm. um, and can support them with those skills when they need them
0: Absolutely, Some some sound advice some really good advice there uh, Julie, for you know, for for our young parents, there's there for the young children. Um, just just talking about once, so so once so once the children are actually at school as well. Obviously, there's there's holidays, there's um, there's days off as well. Um, and obviously, you know, when the children come back come back home as well, what should parents actually be doing at home during these periods, especially you know during the holidays as well, where they might sort of tend to be a little bit more relaxed. Uh, But sort of what can they do to maintain and uh, sort of uh, make sure that they don't forget what they've learned in school?
2: So I think, again, it's a lot of what I've spoken about is being together, having fun, Mm -hmm. you know, having time together reinforces those skills and and that confidence to learn. So when we think about resilience, when they're at school, Hmm. even at secondary school, they need that confidence to be able to approach a complicated maths puzzle, knowing that actually it's okay to get it wrong. So when we're with our children, we can encourage things like that. We can encourage that confidence and resilience. Maybe going to the park together. cooking's Hmm. great as well. You know, joining in cooking, they can help prepare an evening meal maybe. You can reinforce some of that learning. So you might be able to weigh out some ingredients together. You'll be working together to produce that meal or or to make whatever it is you're preparing. You've got all that lovely language encouraged within there as well. Mm. And even um, watching their parents read from a recipe book maybe as well, reinforcing that those um, words have have meanings um, for their children can just really embed that learning that's already happening in a way that they they feel confident in that home setting and definitely just keep reading with them mm. i think that's one thing that schools would suggest in the holidays ensure that they carry on reading stories um, and books with their children
0: absolutely absolutely julie pearson thank you so much for joining us this afternoon it's been an absolute pleasure and of course the the advice that you've given uh, uh, as well. I'm sure that the listeners must have benefited uh, from, that, from that as well. Thank you so much once again and can, have a lovely Can I day.
2: also just um, tell you about our family festival Absolutely. we've got coming up next week. I, yes. I was going to mention that at the um, beginning. So we have our Family Corner website where you'll find all of our resources that we mentioned to you but we've also got a free family festival coming up next week with guests from Tiny Happy People and 50 Things. They've got lots of great ideas and activities that families can become involved in, so have a little look on our family corner site, um, and you'll be able to find out more information about that on there as well.
0: Lovely, lovely. Thank you for uh, thank you for that. Have a lovely day.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So that was uh, Judy Pearson, who is an early years development manager at Early Years Alliance, and who's actually she's passionate about the early years and supporting and also empowering parents and caregivers. As a child's first educators as well with over 25 years of experience working in this uh, sector as well working alongside families with the community settings and also online as well thank you so much uh, to her um and all of this you know all all, both of our guests actually spoke about this today as well that it's important to maintain that family relationship as well um you know we can't stress that you know enough the way, that we, the way that, we, that we that we, treat each other, the way that we treat our children um, is very, very much important. If we respect our children, then they will respect us. If we're just telling off our children, no, don't do this, don't do that, this, that, always keeping on, you know, keep on telling telling off our children, they're not going to like it. It's, they're gonna, there's going to come a time where they're going to be like, okay, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to get shouted at anyway. Whether I do this, whether I do that, I'm going to get shouted at anyway. I'm just going to do whatever I want. That's not the right way. That's not what you want to go towards. What we want to do is we want to let our children do what they do, but also making sure that they, you know, they, 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 they you know, the the process that they actually go through is is in the right way. We should respect our children. We should respect their sentiments. Our, you know, Julie even said that if they, you know, if they're becoming emotional, if they're becoming sad, or if they're becoming worried, we should, you know, they they should be told that you know it's okay to feel these emotions. But obviously how to deal with these emotions as well. Um, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he, he taught us to respect our children and cultivate in them the best of manners. And as, you know, as I guess spoke about this today as well, that and you know, Islam teaches this as well, that education is a life a lifelong a lifelong thing. I mean it starts from the cradle all the way to the grave your whole life you're you're learning you're learning new skills when when a child is born they you know they that is sort of you know the best time that they can actually learn when children are young that is the best time that they can learn different things um it's it's important that we actually teach our children um you know what's important what are the right things what are the good manners what are the good morals and when they you know when when they're being taught all of these good things and they can actually when they grow up they will be you know it will become second nature to them they wouldn't have to think about oh i need to do this good thing they would just do it without thinking about it because the way that they were brought up um you know it's, it's, some may even say that i mean it's the teachings of islam as well that we pray for our children as well we don't just you know we don't just you know we don't just uh, treat them nicely we don't just respect them we don't just cultivate good manners with them we don't just do that but the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, it also taught us that we should do this alongside the prayer. We should also pray for our children. And if we're praying for our children, that his, you know, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, also said that when a, when, a, when a father prays for the child, you know, that prayer is very, very much accepted. And when children pray, their prayers are very much accepted as well. Allah the Almighty loves it when the children pray. So that family relationship, that bond between parents and their children should be a very firm, a very strong relationship. You know, you're talking about how, you know, you know preparation for the child actually begins before the birth. Now, His Holiness, the first caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Hakeem, Maulana Nuruddin, may Allah be his helper, Ah, uh, sorry. May, may Allah be pleased with him. He actually mentioned that um, he actually reported that he could recall hearing the recitation of the Holy Quran by his mother before he was actually even born. When he was in, the, you know, his his mother's belly. This may well have been a major factor in creating love of the Holy Quran and love of Allah in his heart. So it's it's a matter of fact that you know taking care of our children before they're even born also praying for our children before they're even born before they are even conceived that's something which Islam actually teaches and that's very much the teachings of Islam that you know we should try our best to take care of our children to educate our children as well and also alongside all of these good things pray for our children as the second Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community he, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, Hazard, uh, Hazard Ahmad, who is a promised reformer as well, he has written a book um, which is uh, The Way of the Seekers. And there's a chapter in that, uh, Moral Training of the Child. And, that's, and I'll recommend that for, for anyone who, 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 who has a keen interest in this as well. In that he mentions, he instructs that if you want your children to grow into good adults, then use your home as a kind of segregation camp. Keep children away from everything except good influences. This is the only way to safeguard the future generations. So this is exactly, you know, this is exactly the teaching, uh, what we should be doing. Um, and, you know, you know, that's how I will end this part of the show as well. And there's also, you know, prayers which are mentioned in the Holy Quran, uh, you know, for our children and the children for their parents as well. So all of this, you know, goes hand in hand as well. But uh, we must draw a conclusion to this part of the show. Um, Join us after the news break where we will go into the next topic, which is about the NHS and uh, social care reform. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after the news.
4: Ya ya, Al-Quddus Al-Quddus is the Holy One, one who is free from all flaws, a blessed being in whom all blessings are amassed. Sanctification of such a being is to declare him pure and flawless. Al-Quddus is the composite of all purity, not merely free from flaws, but also comprising of all excellences which are known and unknown to human perception. Allah is Quddus and his nearness cannot be availed unless one is pure. There are pure people who extol Allah's holiness much more than the angels do and they also spread it in the world. Among them, of course, the most excellent is the Holy Prophet. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The human adaptation and indeed beneficence of Kuddus was at its most and best in the being of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He admonished his followers to also seek this beneficence and through its blessings remove any bias they may harbour. It is said that when the divine commandment for the forbiddance of alcohol was made public, pots full of alcohol were immediately broken and liquor flowed through the streets of Medina. This revolutionary change was brought about through the Prophet's power of holiness. Famished, stricken with hunger and poverty. It was indeed the Prophet's power of holiness that brought about the blessings in the lives of the companions. The promised Messiah on whom be peace Depicts the transformation but the quality of the Prophet's holiness brought about in Arabia This Prophet was created from the light of Allah Who spread his fragrance to take Allah's beneficence to others Who removed what was false and manifested most luminously in his truth He guided people who were but dead of soul made them civilized and took them to the lofty stages of spiritual discernment. Their drunken nights were transformed into nights of worship of God, and their drunken mornings were transformed into the morning prayer, asbih and istighfar, seeking forgiveness of Allah. In the current age, we have witnessed the manifestation of the holiness of the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. Today, we stand witness to the true reflection of the Qaddus God on earth in the divine system of Khilafate Ahmadiyya. Fortunate are those who recognize it and benefit from its spiritual power.
0: Assalamu alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam Radio. In this part of the show, we're talking about, as I mentioned before, in the beginning of the show, that we're going to be speaking about the NHS and the need for social care reform and, you know, the reformation of social care to, of course, help relieve the pressure on the NHS as well, social care services provide support to people with uh, with learning disabilities, physical disabilities. they may be illnesses, mental health illnesses. I mean, of course, you know, there's a, there's a long list of how many people, uh, how many different types of people um, who are suffering from different disabilities, from different uh, illnesses, from the sicknesses uh, that that the NHS uh, services are actually providing support to, and this support can cover practical practical activities, personal care you know just, 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 just to mention a few and also of course social work intended to help the the, the the people receiving social care to live comfortably. Now social care services actually, let's face it, they, they play a, a vital role, a crucial role in care pathways in keeping people well for longer outside of hospital, and also enabling faster, safer discharge discharges home, and as such, the sector actually plays a critical part in protecting the NHS capacity uh, and its ability to deliver high quality, safe care. However, there is a however now. However, social care itself is showing signs of crisis in the face of severe pressure. I mean. They are facing a lot of pressure, whether it's what, you know, whatever the, whatever the reason was, you know, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the, it was COVID-19, whether it's the, whether it's the government, well, you know, the government, you know, the whole Tory government for the whole, you know, uh, for, for a very long, uh, for a very long period, whether it's them, whether it's other things, other factors which came into actually play as well, they, they are suffering, they're going through a lot, they, they're facing severe pressure and the sector finds itself in a continuous cycle of underinvestment struggling to recruit and retain staff and the you know the consequence of that seeing fewer you know seeing fewer people leaving them uh, less independent more vulnerable more vulnerable and more likely to rely on healthcare services that's you know that's sort of what we're going through. that's we're going through a very difficult time when I remember before i'm and I'm sure that you guys the listeners must you know must recall this as well that a couple of years ago, even if it was a decade ago, ten years ago um the the waiting list for you know if you had if you went into the hospital, if you went into a and e uh I mean, yeah, it it would take around two hours, maybe three hours, but now you literally have people waiting. The whole day, you have people waiting for six hours, seven, eight hours, ten hours. I've seen people wait for ten, twelve hours, just to, just so that someone can actually see them. just so that someone can actually see them. And then after they've been seen, they you know they have to wait another two, three, four hours, or so, they, so that they can actually be treated. Now sometimes they have to wait overnight. sometimes they have to wait long, long periods. I mean someone can just go from, from the UK to or travel from the UK all the way to Australia in that time. In the in the in the meantime where someone can actually see them and actually treat them as well. And I'm not uh, I'm not i I'm not here to bash the NHS. Of course not. I am very much for the NHS and I'm for the social care as well. I'm for all of this. But the fact of the matter, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that it is being bashed into the corner. It is, you know, a lot of people a lot of the staff left they the you know there's there's very few doctors as they used to be there's very few nurses as they used to be and of course the funding is not there as well the funding is there, simply not there now when all of these things you know are are, are playing a vital role when all of these things are actually there the factors are there then of course you know all, of course the waiting lists are going to be longer of course, the the quality of the NHS, what it used to be, is not going to be there uh, as well. Of course, you know the doctors are leaving, the specialists are leaving, the nurses are leaving. If they're having to work, the, you know, the ones that are there, they're having to work longer hours, extra hours. They're not getting, they're not even getting paid. I remember a couple uh, a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, uh, I was in uh, to hospital for for a reason, and um, I heard the nurse saying that she loves her job. She loves or maybe it was a nurse or a doctor, they love their job, they love treating people, they love working in the hospital, they, 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 they love it, that's what they wanted to do. But, there was a but, she said that it doesn't pay the bills though. It's not paying her bills, but she loves her job. So, I mean, someone who's, you know, got into study, gone study to become a doctor, studied to become a nurse, studied to become uh, a health specialist, they they want to do that they want to help other people they want to be out there the front line hands on they want to help the people to help to help the patients and they 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 love that but maybe they might have to reconsider why because it doesn't pay the bills we know we're going through a financial crisis right now we know you know we're going through a very difficult time we might go through a recession we might not but we're very you know we're on the we are we're on the borderline. I mean, there's no denying that we are financially unstable. Inflation has skyrocketed as well. So, if you know do- doctors are saying this themselves that they love their job, they love working in the hospital, but it's not paying their bills. Then what are they going to do? Are they going to get another job? Are they going to have to work extra hours? But you know they might not even get paid. So th- this is something which is definitely there, and the resolve needs to be there. And the people who are in power, can't they do anything about this, or is it simply that they don't want to do anything about this? If you look at them, you know the, you know if you look at the, you know the, the, the leaders of the world, they what they they're not millionaires, no, they're not billionaires, they're multi billionaires, literally, they haven't got one or two billion, they've got a lot of billions. Can't they just put in a little bit? Can't they help the social care? Can't they help? the hospitals can't they fund the hospitals even a little bit can't they contribute i mean that's a whole different story but let's see you know it is it puts us all into it puts us all into a difficult a difficult uh, situation as well of course it goes down to all the people all the way to the top all the way to the bottom every single person is actually affected hospitals if they're underfunded all of these things the doctors are leaving uh, the nurses are leaving, the staff, I mean, the understaffed and the people, the staff that are still remaining over there, that are still there, they're having to work longer hours, extra hours. They're having to see more patients. Obviously, they're going to be tired. And obviously, if, if that's the case, then, you know, even the equipment that they have might be limited as well. Of course, the patients are going to suffer as well. So it's a whole chain. Everyone in that chain is going to suffer. We'll talk a little bit more uh about this uh about this as well, um, you know, a little bit later on as well. But let's get our let's get our guest who is on the line with us, uh Bobby Dean, who is elected councillor uh on Sutton uh, Sutton Council and the Lib Dem a parliamentary candidate for Car Shelton and also Wallington as well. Uh, peace be upon you, good afternoon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much.
5: Good
0: afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay. for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, could you just uh, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself?
5: Yeah, I mean, that, that was a good introduction to my political career, I guess. I'm a councillor in London, Borough sat at the moment and running to be the MP for Carl Shutton and Wellington. Um, my professional background is in international aid. I've spent hmm. most of the last decade working with charities on issues like global poverty, uh, health and education. Hmm. Um, so got to travel the world a little bit with that, but now firmly rooted here in the UK
0: great that's great um just getting straight into it then uh, talking about uh social care especially adult social care is also becoming a a a major problem here in the here in england and here in the uk what is the government doing though to try and overcome these uh these problems that we're facing
5: well in short not nearly enough Mm -hmm. um this uh we've been talking about a crisis in social care for well over a decade now and in fact there's a report out about 12 years ago outlining exactly what we felt uh, uh, needed to be done to, to fix the problems in social care. And um, we've just had promise after promise and delay after delay. Um, I think one of the big things is, is about recruitment. I think we need about 165,000 care workers at the moment to, to come into the system. And, um, well, they're not doing it because they're simply not paid enough for, for what they do. It's, mm. a, it's a really skilled and valuable role, but People would rather go and work in office jobs or call centres or supermarkets because, frankly, you're, you're you're paid more to do so, and it's probably a little less stress.
0: Yeah. Now, why do you think the why do you think the NHS, you know, specifically talking about the adult social care, uh, that, that whole department is is they're finding it hard to deal with the amount of patients, um, you know, that are actually staying in hospital.
5: Yeah, so I mean, one of the things is is that the adult social care system is is quite separate to the NHS at the moment, so it's not integrated um, well, um, but it is completely dependent on it. And the the reason for that is because we've had huge demographic change. Um, when the NHS was created, um, you know, in the, in the middle of the last century, um, people simply didn't live as long as they did after retirement, and now they do, which is a good thing. Mm. You know, it's a great thing that people are living long after retirement, but they tend to live with more complicated health conditions and that requires a special level of care so mm. um, the NHS is now full of patients that require that kind of care and they can't legally and um, you know morally discharge people if they're not going to get the care they need when they leave the hospital so many elderly elderly people are, are stuck in the hospital because they can't be discharged back into their homes or back into a care home or whatever level of care that they need. And um, that means that their beds remain occupied. And that means the next set of people that need to come in and get the healthcare treatment that they need, they're, they're kind of blocked from doing so. So really, if, we, if we're able to fix the social care element, so people are able to be um, looked after either in their homes or in, or in um, other facilities away from the hospital, then we can free up bed capacity in the NHS. And that means they'll be able to deal with more patients more quickly. I think it's about a third of beds in emergency units at the moment occupied. people that could could go home and be looked after or in different locations. If, if only we had a social care system that
0: worked. Wow. wow. Um, so is, is there anything then that, that we can actually do to to help reduce this pressure on the social care system?
5: Yeah, I mean, the, the quickest thing is a, a pay rise. The Liberal Democrats have been calling for actually a £2 per hour pay rise for mm. all carers. So they, they effectively have a new minimum wage, and that's to attract people back into the profession. Um, mm. It's not a silver bullet. It won't solve every problem, but it, w- it will pro- provide some sort of short-term relief because we'll get some carers back into the to the system and also obviously reward the ones that are, are doing the work now. and um, In in the long run, we're going to have to have a big conversation as a nation about how we're going to address this funding gap, um, not only for the workforce, uh, but also for some of the sort of preventative work, the early intervention work. So if we're able to do more proactive work in the community with um, elderly people, then we might be able to identify the sorts of levels of care that they need earlier. Um, meaning that they don't end up in hospital and then don't need more um, higher levels of care afterwards, that are more costly, more complicated, harder to organise. So if we're able to do um, more, kind of reach out in the community, then we can, you know, keep people um, living independently, keep people um, in their homes, keep people looked after before they reach that crisis point where they end up in hospital and they need much higher levels of care. So mm-hmm. at the moment, some of that preventative and early intervention work just just isn't happening i know from being a council uh a councillor on the council and we're looking at our budget this year yet again our central government budgets have gone down um and so we're trying to find savings and one of the first places you have to find savings is that kind of proactive work because mm. you have a big duty to do the reactive work immediately so yeah it's we we, we need to we need a huge amount of funding increase and that means there's a big conversation nation about how we're going to pay for it um which will probably mean some tax rises in some areas in order to do that um but yeah that's a conversation i think we as a, a country need to have if we want to if we want to look after our um elderly relatives well hmm.
0: Hmm. and you know with the with the recent strikes which are happening um do you think that the public's opinions are actually taken into account or do you think that they're just getting brushed under on, on, on the carpet
5: Well, I actually think the public are pretty supportive of the strike action. Um, Not Mm. because, obviously, they enjoy disruption to their lives, because absolutely nobody wants that. And it's it's always terrible when um, things like, you know, appointments for surgeries or whatever are are cancelled because healthcare workers aren't available. That is always a tragedy and that's a failure of governments. But I think that people understand that, the, our healthcare workforce um, deserve a pay rise um, but what they're being offered by the government at the moment is not good enough. It's it's effectively a real terms pay cut because um, the the uplift that they're offering will not make up for what's going up the other end because of inflation um, and I think people realise that we owe a sort of huge debt to our healthcare workforce who've got us through that pandemic really, really well and uh, basically have had their pay frozen for a long time now so they're feeling the effects of Um, this inflation increase that's been so stark in last year more than anybody. So I I think that the government have got this wrong. They're kind of playing a bit bit of a tough attitude towards uh, the healthcare staff. I think they're taking them for granted slightly. Um, And actually, if they listen to the public a bit harder, they'd realise that the public are are on the side of the healthcare workers.
0: Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Um, Just talking about uh, with Brexit, actually, do you think that this is a factor of the adult adult social care crisis as we've seen a decline and jobs being accepted by the British public with the same jobs which people from the from the EU are actually willing to do?
5: I mean I, I said right at the start of um, our conversation that this is a problem that's been going on for for a long long time yeah. and it predates Brexit I mean mm. we've, we've been talking about a crisis now social care for a long time without a doubt you know losing some workers Um, because they may have returned to the European Union will have had an impact. But it it, it does go much bigger than that. Um, Mm. It's about the pay. It's about the conditions. It's about training and developing a new workforce. Um, There there are probably things that we could do to our immigration system to improve the situation. Some of the ridiculous bureaucracy that's around now um, is is, is definitely not helping. Um, But I would say that this is not a problem that can just purely be solved by... Um, immigration this is this is something that requires root and branch reform we def- we definitely need to look at pay i think carers um, are not paid enough they they need to have a boost um to their incomes if people are going to go take on this job um, and and their conditions as well i mean some of the conditions that carers have put through having to jump between appointments um in very short times periods means they, that they're put under enormous amount of strain um, so yeah there's a much wider problem but no, no doubt it would have
0: had some impact but it's not the whole story mm, absolutely well thank you so much for for joining us uh, this afternoon very interesting speaking to you getting your um, uh, expertise in terms of this as well well we thank you so much once again and have a lovely day
5: thank you very much
0: you. that was uh, bobby dean who's elected councillor on in sutton council and the Lib Dem parliamentary candidate for Carl Shelton and also Wallington as well. Very interesting uh, speaking to him and listening to him uh, as well. As you know, as he mentioned that if there was some way in which we can actually take on the the social care for the elderly um, upon ourselves, that could actually loosen the burden uh, in the hospitals as well, i mean you mentioned that there's a lot i think you mentioned a third a third of the, the the you know the seats could actually be 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 available a third of the you know the hospital beds can actually be available if those uh if those patients were actually discharged and were actually allowed to go home um but making sure that they had someone to look out for them to take care uh, of them as well and to you know allow new Patients actually come in. That's a, that's quite a lot. Islam uh, teaches um, for us to take care of our parents. Islam teaches that when it, when 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 a parents reach a reach an old age, sometimes they can you know say things which which might upset us. But because they are your parents, you know we must respect them. And whatever they do, whatever they say, don't even say oof to them. Don't even say that oh. I want no that's wrong or this is right or whatever you know take care of them respect them and also that is uh, one of the things in which uh, Islam teaches if you look at you know you know I'm not uh, supporting uh, some of the countries but if we're talking about Pakistan or various other uh uh countries which are you know which claim to be islamic you know there's you know you, you would hardly find any sort of Old care homes or old people's homes, in this sense, you might find some, but it's not it's not a common thing, because parents they, they you know they they live at home they live with their children, and the children live with their parents. It's not just that you know they they're just at home and they you know they they don't want to move out or they don't want or the children don't actually want them to be living with them. They want to send them to the care homes or they want other people to take care of them. It's not like that. That's not even a concept in these sort of countries it's you know it's it's actually considered um a negative it's actually seen as in a negative light that when when children when children send their parents to the old care homes and 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 do this what 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 what, uh uh children actually do is that they keep their parents in their homes and they they take care of them in chapter 4 verse 37 of the holy quran allah the almighty mentions and worship Allah and associate not with him and show kindness to parents and to kindred and orphans and the needy and to the neighbor that is a kinsman and the neighbor that is a stranger and the companion by your side and the wayfarer and those whom your right hand possesses surely Allah loves not the proud and the boastful now this verse is self-explanatory it shows the importance of showing care to everyone not only to those who are you know who are dearer to you who are actually close to you who you have a relationship but those who actually need any sort of help whatsoever whether you know them or you don't know them whether they're uh whether you're acquainted with them or if they're a stranger and one must not brag about what they've done as this leads to arrogance and this was what mentioned at the end of the verse as well that you know, if you do all of these good things, if you take care of all of these people, don't think that, oh, you have done something good. Don't think that, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm very good now. I'm a very good person. I've done this. I've done that. I've taken care of all of these people. But Allah the Almighty mentions that Allah loves not the proud and the boastful. So remember that taking care of your parents is nothing to be proud about. That's your duty. Somebody says that, oh, oh I took care of my parents. I... I took care of my fellow human beings. I took care of my fellow uh, family members. I took care of the, you know, of my neighbor, and becomes proud that oh, he did this, he did that. He took care of this, this, this such and such person. And that's nothing to be proud about because that's your duty. That's your primary duty. That's what you should be doing. Um, but you know that that's going off in a little bit of a tangent. But talking about one specific thing in particular is that Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran in another place that he will forgive other sins. He'll forgive forgive other sins, whatever the sins may be. But if somebody associate partners with him, if somebody does shirk, if somebody um, believes in other gods other than Allah, the Almighty, he does not forgive that person. Now, of course, if that person repents, then, then that's a different story. But that person who who's a mushrik, who is a idol worshipper, who believes in more than one god, And who doesn't believe in God at all? Allah the Almighty doesn't like that person and he punishes that person. So that's basically the worst sin that one can actually do. The worst sin that anyone can ever do is to associate partners with God. And that's what Allah the Almighty mentions first in this verse. And worship Allah and associate not with him. Worship God and don't think that there are more than one God. Don't think that there's That there's other gods. There's only one God, Allah. And straight after that, so that's the first thing, right? So the very next thing which Allah the Almighty mentions is to show kindness to parents. Show kindness to parents. This shows us, this tells us how important it is for all of us to take care of our parents. Now, it's a report by the NHS published in November last year, 2022, showed that from 2016 up till now, there is a growing demand on local authorities for social care support. Expenditure on social care continues to rise. You know, the number of other, uh, you know, adult, adult, uh, uh, older adults receiving local authority long-term support has generally decreased over the time periods, while short-term support uh, offer, uh, offered has actually increased levels of satisfaction amongst older service uh, users for the care they receive have decreased in the most recent years they're they're lower for unpaid carers which can reflect both the support that they receive as carers or the services given to uh, their uh, cared for person as well and also numbers of staff directly employed by local authorities in the care sector have decreased and vacancies have increased, and these types of social care and support they they also they include various different things. They include help at home uh, from a from a paid carer. There could be meals on wheels. There could be having having home adaptations, household gadgets and equipment, personal alarms and home security systems, uh, so you can call for help. You know, for instance, if uh, if you have a fall or whatever different types of housing and such as uh, supported living services and care home so there are different things which you know social care uh, takes care of and also uh, how how much it has been affected in chapter 18 verse 31 of the holy quran Allah the Almighty mentions verily those who believe and do good works surely we suffer not the reward of, of those who do good works to be lost now this means that a person's good deeds in this case caring for caring for the ill person no matter how tiny and seemingly insignificant it might seem but honest contributions will lead to God Almighty granting them the highest success whether it be um, in, in, in this particular life or in the next so this is what we should be doing this is the teachings of Islam. Islam teaches us to 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 be just, to observe justice. In fact, in Surah Al-Nahl, in chapter sixteen, verse ninety-one of the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty mentions that Allah, verily Allah enjoins justice. You know, being being just, and it's a very good trait. But then more than that, and the doing of good to others. You know, be compassionate. Somebody doesn't do good to you; you still do good to that person. You know, being just is Somebody does good to you, you do good to that person. But if somebody doesn't even do good to you, does bad to you, you still do good to that person. But then Allah Almighty doesn't stop there. He says that, and giving like kindred. And that means just as a mother takes care of her children without wanting any sort of reward, she does that. She serves her children, she treats her children. She does everything for her children, just for those children. And she does it because she is the mother. She does it because she has that sort of love. She has that kindred love uh, for her, for her children. Just like that, Allah the Almighty tells us that we should be doing the same thing. We should try to uh, serve others, even you know, without the without the without the thinking at the back of our mind that, oh, if I do this, then I'm gonna get a reward, or I'm gonna do this, or that person will treat me as oh, well. I'll, I'll tap his back, he will tap my back. And I, you know, I'll do good to that person, that good person will do good to me as well. Not having that thought, just doing good, just because you want to do good. Just doing good, just because you want to win the pleasure of, of, of God. But then Allah the Almighty mentions, so these are the three steps. And then forbids indecency and manifests evil and wrongful transgression. He admonishes you that you may take heed. So this is a sort of a moral compass for us. This teaches us morality. This teaches us the do's and don'ts, what we should be doing, what we should not be doing as well. So, you know, if we if we put all of these things in, ha, you know, in one hand or if we put all of these things together, they tell us that we need to do something seriously about the social care. We need to do something about the hospitals. We need to do something about the elderly. And Islam has taught us these things as well. Islam has taught us to take care of our parents. In the first part of the show, we were talking about how we can treat our children and how best we can actually instill good manners in them. If we treat them nicely, if we treat them in the best possible way that we can, if we treat them in a way that that they will grow up to be good citizens, that they will grow, grow up to be good children actually, they will grow up to be good adults. In the end, in the long run, those children will come up, they will get older, and then when they when their parents become of old age, when they reach old age, the children can actually treat them in a best manner as well. And Allah the almighty has taught us a prayer in the Holy Quran about our parents Rabir Hamma Gama Rabbayani Sagira that O oh Allah have mercy on him, on them both. Oh Allah, have mercy on, on, you know, on, on my parents as they had mercy on me as they treated me nicely when I was young. And this is a very beautiful prayer in the, in, in the Holy Quran as well that we should actually be doing for our parents. And this is something which, you know, which we're taught as a, at a very young age to to treat each other nicely. But also, I mean, I'm just going to repeat what I said in the first hour that of course we can do good things and that's a very good thing. Doing good, you know, enjoying what is good, uh, being just, enjoying what is good, give like kindred, but also at the very same time we should also be praying uh to God Almighty as well, striving for this cause, but also praying for this cause as well. And if we're doing that, if we're try if we're treating our parents, if we're keeping them at home, not giving them out um and telling someone else to take care of them, that would actually loosen the burden on the NHS as well. And that's, and that's a very positive thing that we can actually do. So you know, that is some food for thought. That is something that we need to uh, think about as well. Bobby was mentioning before as well, our guest, he was mentioning before that this is something which <laughs> this is something which has not it, I mean yes, Brexit did have an impact on this, but it's, it's been happening before that. It's been happening much before that, the defunding, all of this. So funding needs to come back in. The, you know, the, the, the minimum wage needs to go up as well. And all of this is happening, uh, all of this needs to happen because of the cost of living is going up as well. And obviously, if, if if something is not meeting ends meet, you know, as I mentioned before as well, that the doctor, a doctor said that, and I'm sure that many doctors will actually say this, that they love their job, but it doesn't pay the bills. So it's important for the policy makers, it's important for the you know, the government, the people who are in control, to actually look into this properly and come up with a solution that, that would actually be positive, um, not you know not just not just defunding, taking the you know putting in cuts. and because of that, a lot of the workforce is actually left. But what can we do? What can the government do? What can they actually do, which is productive? and actually brings attracts the people back comes and brings the people back into this sector so that it can actually boom as it once uh, used to as well we were very fortunate to uh to interview uh Fazid Hadi who's head of policy at disability rights UK let's listen to uh to Fazid Hadi
3: So for today's show, we have Fazila Hardy, who is the Head of Policy at Disability Rights UK and is leading the influencing work for social care. Hi, Fazila. Thank you for coming today. It's a pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you for your time. So first of all, I just wanted to ask, um, what is Disability Rights UK for those who who don't know? And what does your role involve? Um, thank you for
6: asking. Disability Rights UK is um a national pressure group that promotes the rights of disabled people. Um yeah. we we represent people across all health conditions and impairments who experience disabling barriers to accessing society, whether that's employment or the street environment or work and um, sorry um social care. so we really um look at the social aspects of disability not the medical aspects
3: yeah
6: Um, and we are led by disabled people which means that the majority of our trustees and our staff are disabled and have lived experience of what being disabled means
3: yeah so have your colleagues had that experience where they have like um obviously you say they are disabled themselves so they have had the experience of lack of social care or they've gone through that themselves?
6: Yes, some of us have, not all of us, so some um, use social care support and some have used the access to work scheme, which is support um, to keep disabled people in work and help us gain jobs. Yeah. Um, You know, many of us use public transport and um, experience all the challenges that other disabled people have. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah um so how has with your like obviously how has uh, social care been affected these past few years especially during Covid times like so where you yeah. work how has Covid affected social care
6: well I'm just going a bit further back than Covid um, yeah. social care has experienced significant cuts to its budget so all through from 2010 really, to before COVID times. Mm. um, Social care budgets were um, reduced, and that meant that fewer people were able to get social care, and those that did get social care often got less than they needed. It's also meant that people are asked to pay contributions to social care, and that means that comes out of their benefits, and those contributions, those charges have gone up. Yeah. in recent times they've gone up very very steeply
3: so obviously in, the during, cost sorry go on, yeah. go on. I was oh, just going to so, say the cost of like people's benefits have gone low and the the, so, uh, the cost of social care has gone higher so obviously mm-hmm. that doesn't work out
4: it
6: doesn't and it and it, uh, it adds to other increasing costs like Um, the cost of energy, the cost of food, rents and mortgages going up, and people's contributions to care charging. So it's a a very, you know, for many disabled people on low incomes or on benefits, the situation is very bleak where we hear the stories every day about people missing meals, not turning on their heating, etc. But just coming back to the pandemic and social care, during the pandemic, um, the government actually reduced our rights to social care. It actually gave local authorities permission to reduce social care, Mm. um, which we really fought as Disability Rights UK, but the Coronavirus Act went through and it basically meant that some local authorities did reduce social care provision. Also, the government was very, very slow in getting um, PPE, the protective equipment and testing into social care whether that was care being received in your own home or care in a residential home you know we were the you know we felt very neglected as a community
3: yeah yeah because obviously during covid time we heard so much about how care homes are being affected and yeah it's um it's really tough
6: yeah, it wasn't just care homes, you know, people getting care in their own personal yeah. home.
3: Yeah. You know,
6: they, they were getting care workers coming around without the right equipment, the yeah, masks, the so protective obviously equipment. So that people puts the are very patient vulnerable. at risk as well. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Um, so do you think that too much damage has been done to the social care system, or do you think some of it is still salvageable? Well you
6: have to stay optimistic. It is a really grim time um, for people receiving social care at the moment. There aren't enough staff. So there's a massive amount of vacancies. Residential homes are closing because they can't keep up with the energy and other costs. Yeah. Um, the um, As I said, the care charges are going up. So it's a really bleak time. But I think there is some hope. Um, it's not going to come fast enough, unfortunately. But during COVID, I think people did recognise that social care is an equal partner with healthcare.
3: Yeah.
6: And even now, um, we have healthcare leaders speaking out about the lack of funding for social care because many, many hospital beds um, are occupied by people who can't leave the hospital because they can't get adequate social care. Yeah. And that's yeah. you know it shouldn't that shouldn't the only reason we care about social care but that's made it a bit of a national issue again yeah there is a bit of a spotlight because the health service doesn't work well if social care doesn't
3: work well yeah so they are connected
6: exactly and i think that's important because politicians care a lot about health and so does the general public so the minute um, they can see that social care is important to the health service i think that'll help us the other thing is there have been quite a few reports recently, one from the House of Lords and more recently one from the Church of England, all really pointing to us needing a better funded social care system that really supports disabled people of all ages to lead full active lives in the community. Yeah. So I think even though you know the money isn't there yet and we still need investment, I think. Yeah. There's a growing consensus that social care is here to stay and it needs to be much more, uh, much more um, important service in our lives. And, you know,
3: given the same respect that health services given. Yeah, because like now we see how much like social care is actually important. Because it, like we were talking about before, it all connects. So there mm-hmm. are people taking up beds who shouldn't really be be there because yeah. just because of the reason that they don't have adequate social care. Yeah, and they're taking up maybe beds who for people who actually need them more than that person. But obviously, you can't just like desert them. You can't just let yeah. them go without knowing that they're going to well, be. Well, the cared. other, yeah, you know, there's many
6: links. So. If I'm a disabled person and I don't have the heating on, yeah. maybe my condition will worsen. Yeah, um,
3: yeah. If
6: I don't eat the right food, maybe my condition will worsen and I'll go into hospital. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's good reasons for social care to keep us healthy and safe in the community. Yeah. And then definitely. get out of hospital as quickly as you can, because obviously people do get infection, other infections in hospital. Yeah. It's not good for any of us yeah. to stay there longer than we need to. Yeah.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, So we've been highlighting, obviously, the negatives that are happening right now with social care, but with your experience, what positive changes have you seen with the social care system?
6: Well, when it works well, um, social care um, is amazing. I mean, it helps disabled people to actually go to work because, you know, some people need support getting up in the mornings, getting washed, getting dressed yeah and then they're they're able to actually um do a job. So yeah. it helps enormously um, for working age adults who who want to work. It helps people when it's working well, it helps us not just to receive kind of um help with eating and washing and dressing, but it enables us to, connect with um our family and our friends yeah. Enables us to socialize to go to the supermarket to be connected within our communities and i think there's a more of an understanding now that social care isn't just about keeping us alive it is about enabling us to lead a good life you yeah. know, to the best of our yeah. ability so, so i think quality. those are all positives when it's working well Social care is amazing and it can be really liberating for disabled people. And that's how it should be for every disabled person who needs it. But unfortunately, it isn't at the moment. But we need to get to that place where we all are given the support we need to live our best life.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what campaigns have the Disability Rights UK done in regards to social care?
6: Well, we've mainly been trying to influence um the politicians and the government to um invest in social care to create um a social care service that is, you know, about connection and community, not just about washing and dressing. Yeah. But we've also supported um we've supported a campaign um that Inclusion London have been running, which is about um reducing care charges and um, Inclusion London uh, have done a great job on that campaign. We've also supported a campaign on removing the barriers to recruiting personal assistants. So those are the people that um, you can um, recruit to, so that you get your care and support from people that you've recruited yourself rather than being given the local authorities or the providers workers you're yeah. you're actually in charge of your own care so we've supported the campaign around personal assistance so um but on the whole we're mainly trying to shift the policies of this government and any future government so that we get social care put on an equal footing with yeah. health yeah for sure
3: it's a it's a hard one um mm. but um, hopefully, I think hopefully. we'll still be talking about this in a year or two. <laughs> yeah, because it's become so prominent now in the news, like all the time you hear it in the news about how like worse social care is getting. So hopefully yeah. there'll be some, some way that, you know, we hear some good news about it. Soon. I hope so. And I
6: think there's local campaigns, you know, there are disabled people's organisations in different counties, in, in different cities in the country, like, like Inclusion London, you know, like there's there's disabled people's organisations in Manchester, in Bristol, in, Leeds, in Leicester, yeah. in Coventry, in York. And I think all these
3: organisations are fighting.
6: Yeah, so it like something is being done, which is the main I think,
3: thing. You know, because
6: yeah. it's, it's delivered by local authorities and obviously we need more government funding and stronger policies and a stronger framework but we also need to hold our own local authorities to account for what they're doing
3: yeah so how um how do you get your funding to do like basically the work that you do
6: yeah well um, it's tough and for a lot of disabled people's organizations funding is really tough so we have mixture of um, funding we try and get funding from um trusts um and foundations you know for particular projects yeah um we try and get funding um from government not government we don't get any much government funding but sometimes government agencies like sport england they fund us and we do get some funding for a project that we do for the department of education
3: yeah
6: and then we also sell our training and consultancy to business um and we do that so that we can then contribute any small profit we get back into Disability Rights UK
3: yeah and
6: we sell um something called the Disability Benefits Handbook um and we sell that to you know that is the sort of the key document to yeah. help people work out benefits and we use the profits from that to plow back into our policy work and our and our work that you know isn't funded by trusts etc our core costs so we're very small and um we we try and get in money wherever we can but yes it's a it's always a bit of a challenge
3: yeah i'm sure i can imagine how tough it must be um so how can people find more about yourselves Oh, well,
6: please visit our website, the Disability Rights UK website. Just Google us and find us. We have an e-news bulletin that we produce every fortnight, which will give people um, the latest sort of news, latest disability news, what we think is important, and what our policy stance is. Um, we're on Twitter at Disrights um, if people want to follow us there yeah um, and we've recently even started a TikTok platform at Dis Rights so yeah people please um find us and see what we're doing and um and start you know taking action in your own local area on disability rights
3: yeah um so thank you so much for Zeelat Hardy that was really really like um a good interview and really good information that you shared um, that was Fazila Hadi, she was Head of Policy at Disability Rights UK. Thanks a lot Fazila and i speak you. to you soon. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks a lot.
0: Uh, uh, that was uh, Fazila Hadi, thank you so much uh, for her taking time out and uh, speaking to us as well, contributing to the show. The fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has Mr. Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him, wrote a book called Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues. And in, uh, it's a very, very interesting book, and I do um, do very much recommend it to anyone who, who, you know, who actually wants to learn more about Islam as well, and Islam's response to contemporary issues. He writes in that book that res- the responsibility for care of the aged is gradually shifting to the state. Care of the age, age aged represents a heavy burden on the national economy. However, much however much a state is ready to spend, it can never buy them peace and contentment. The most terrible feeling of having been rejected, left out and abandoned, and the most painful realization of a growing void of loneliness within are problems beyond the reach of many to resolve. To consider that a comparatively remote relation would ever be taken care of by the rest of the family has become almost impossible to imagine. In such societies, the need for homes for the aged grows with the passage of time. Yet, it is not always possible for a stage to uh, apportion enough money to provide for them even the minimum requirements of a decent life. Physical ailments are much easier to cure or alleviate, but the deep psychological traumas from which a, from which a considerable number of elderly members of modern societies are suffering are far more difficult to treat. Now this ex- uh, extract shows why social care is so important, especially by family members. Family members can feel the aged and the disabled are a burden on them, which is why some choose to put them into care. If the family members are able to take care of their relatives, then they should do so. Rather, they're making the relatives feel worse by putting them in an unknown, in an unknown place, uh, in a care home or a hospital as well, where they don't even know who's going to treat them, what's going to happen, and uh, what, their, what their future might be as well. So, this is what Islam teaches. Islam teaches that we should be together and take care of our children take care of our children also, as we mentioned in the first part of the show, but also take care of our parents, take care of the elderly, take take care of the of our or you know or of anyone who needs our help as well. This was our show for our our show uh, today. um hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed it. Thank you so much for all of our listeners, uh, of you guys you know who actually listened. In and of course, to all of our guests who took time out and spoke to us today, thank you to the producers and of course the researchers as well, Sabiha um, Tariq and also Zohra Mubashir. Thank you, Zakallah, to them, and of course, the technical department uh, in the technical studio, Aki Thank you to him. Until next time, we will come with some new topics, some very interesting topics, and come back. Until next time, though, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.